Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello everyone, this is Priyanka Vidak on behalf of Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm speaking again with Dr. Chris Syed and Dr. Asana Alavi in part two of our series on the North American Clinical Management Guidelines for Hydrogenitis Supertiva, published in July 2019. Dr. Chris Syed is an Associate Professor of Dermatology with me at the University of North Carolina, and Dr. Alavi is an Assistant Professor of Dermatology at the University of Toronto, and both of them are amongst the authors of these guidelines. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. So listeners, if you haven't already, please check out part one of our coverage of these clinical guidelines, which focus on the diagnosis, evaluation, and use of complementary and procedures in the treatment of hydradenitis superativa. Today, in part two, we'll cover topical, intralesional, and systemic medical management. Dr. Syed and Dr. Alavi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. To start, what are your thoughts on the use of topicals for this disease process? What patients do you look at for these, and which topical agents in particular do you recommend? First of all, I would like to thank you for the opportunity. And regarding your question, for topical therapy patients with ASS, we do not have robust evidence that either topical therapy as a solo treatment or adjunct to other treatments, what is the exact effect. But however, what came to the guideline is the current therapies that are used, like clindamycin 2% uh, BID for three months are based on a study randomized control trial that was done in 1983 and uh, on 27 patients and it showed that it helped in reduction of superficial lesions like postures, even though it doesn't have a great effect on top, on deeper lesions. And also there is a new, more recent study looking at 239 patients showed that patients that are using topical clindamycin are more likely to grow clindamycin resistance staph arose compared to patients that are not using topical antibiotics. 63% versus 17%, that is the concern of using topical antibiotics. However, other therapies like catalytic, catalytic agents like reversinol, 15% are also as a second and third line of therapy in, in the guideline for topical, but also based on a small topical antibiotics like erythromycin, 2%. Metronidazole 0.75%. They do not have a study, but are options for therapy, in particular in pregnant patients, uh, in terms of topical use. So it sounds like, which makes sense for all of us, like with hydradenitis, usually a deeper scarring process, perhaps for those patients who either have limitations due to pregnancy or if they have very limited disease, they can potentially play a bigger role, but oftentimes still to try to use it as an adjunct, even for those patients who have kind of deeper disease processes. Is this kind of also how you view using the laser hair removal, which we briefly touched upon in our last discussion? I think probably the ideal patients, you know, much like with topical therapy is when you can use it earlier on before the disease becomes too advanced. Once somebody's got widespread early stage 3 disease and they've got, you know, a body region that's just kind of full of interconnected sinuses and scarring, I think there's a limitation to how much 
a hair removal type of laser can really achieve because that ultimately needs a, a sort of more extensive surgical intervention. That being said, a lot of patients have you know, a mix of Hurley stage 1, 2, and 3 over different body regions, and so the laser still might be very useful in those patients in trying to slow up progression and keep new lesions from coming up as often in other body locations and make it so that if they get surgery done in one area, we don't allow other areas to get out of control. But typically, you know, the earlier you can use a laser, the better. If you're removing hair follicles permanently by doing a series of treatments, I think you have sort of less individual hair follicles that become inflamed over time, and you maybe help change disease trajectory for patients. So earlier is better when possible, but it does have a role later on, too. Perfect. Okay, that makes sense then. And then for patients, and for most of our patients then, the ones who have kind of the interconnected sinus tracts and are kind of more in the Hurley stage 2 to 3 category, Moving on to the systemic options for them, how do you in general just approach these patients and kind of balance the different options we have between antibiotics, hormones, hormonal therapies, retinoids, kind of moving on to the immunosuppressives? How do you balance that entire decision-making process? Probably one of the most common treatments for in patients with HS for all of us are antibiotics, even though still the role of Bacteria is not exactly clear, but the most common treatments are antibiotics. The tetracycline family are the first line of treatment for mild to moderate HS. And in most guidelines have been suggested for at least three months and some guidelines three to six months. And after that, going based on flare or on a maintenance treatment. Uh, the first line for moderate to severe in terms of antibiotics are clindamycin. Tetracycline was for mild to moderate. Uh, clindamycin and rifampicin, 300 milligram clindamycin BID, rifampicin, 300 milligram BID, and that has been suggested for also 10 weeks. Then I repeat this section. Then the first line of treatment for a more severe disease, moderate to severe disease, is clindamycin and rifampicin in combination, clindamycin 300 milligram BID and rifampicin 300 milligram BID, both for the duration of 10 weeks. But the, the concern regarding this combination is many times we have a drug-drug interaction with rifampicin and we are trying to avoid using rifampicin alone because of risk of resistance. The other two antibiotics uh, with smaller study, Dapson has been used in a stage, early stage one and two. And for most severe disease, IV ertapenem has an interesting effect that has been mentioned in North American guideline too. In cases that have severe disease as a bridge, particularly as a bridge to surgery or for next step, Therapy using uh, ertapenem IV one gram for six weeks have been suggested as a bridge therapy. Yes, and I just uh, want to briefly touch if uh, Dr. Sayed, anything about antibiotics you would like to add, and then I go. Yeah, I very much agree with that. Like Dr. Lavi said, the evidence on antibiotics, even though we use them so commonly, is just very weak. And so almost across the board, it's Category C recommendations and Category B for clindamycin and rifampin. Because even if you look at doxium and acyclin that we use so often, there was one study that looked at tetracycline compared to topical clindamycin. The outcomes were very similar in the two treatment groups. So I think there are patients who respond well to these things, but it's not really clear 
what patient is going to do what best with which antibiotic. And so it does feel like there is some trial and error that goes into it because doing things like simple wound cultures just don't get you a good answer on that. And so very complicated regimens. Dr. Lavi mentioned the stuff most commonly used, you know, metronidazole in combination with moxifloxacin and rifampin has also been used in some series and is probably helpful for some patients, but it gets much more complicated when patients are on triple antibiotic therapy trying to manage side effects and remember to take medications. So hopefully it gets more clear over time if there are ways to predict, you know, which patients are best suited with which antibiotics. But it is a big challenge right now to figure out exactly who's going to do best with what. I just want to add that one of the important things regarding antibiotics is that if patient is not responding after one or second dose of antibiotics, then that shows that this is not the treatment that then uh, the treatment of choice for this case. Probably we need to use combination therapy, other modality, instead of keeping this patient longer than expected on antibiotics without this one. And I'll add one more thing. is that The other thing that comes up a lot is what is the right duration of use? And most studies that have reported antibiotic use, especially for clindamycin or rifampin, it typically is done for a 12-week period. And that concern comes up that if a patient is doing really, really well on therapy, and as soon as you stop, they flare up again very quickly. You know, how do you try to address that patient where that therapy seems to work very well and the patient tolerates it well? And I think there probably are instances that go sort of above what evidence shows right now where certain patients do very well, and it's reasonable to extend either over a very long period of time or even indefinitely to do some antibiotics for certain patients longer, just like we do for things like ocular rosacea, where mm-hmm. benefit just outweighs risk for those individual patients. You know, we can't do that for everybody because resistance to antibiotics is a major problem, but I think there are cases where benefit outweighs risk in select cases to consider. That's really, there's so many good pearls in there that I think are a lot of questions that cross my mind when I see these patients as well. And I think maybe also helpful to express those things to the patients who are often so frustrated when one antibiotic doesn't work. And that's really good information on our end as well. And moving on from antibiotics for the hormonal therapies in females, how do you decide if that's the route to go? And do you ask if it's flaring with their menstrual cycles? Or do you feel like even if they don't have that symptom, that those can be helpful? I think this is a very interesting area because hormonal fluctuation and imbalance have been thought to contribute to HS pathogenesis. And we we see many women who have uh, perimenstrual flare. And also we know that androgen receptor stimulation may contribute to sebum production and follicular occlusion. Then it makes sense to particularly in patients that have comorbidities like women who have diabetes, polycystic ovary syndrome, or hyperandrogenism, we offer hormonal therapy as an adjunct or as a solo therapy. The treatments that have been studied are metformin as an anti-inflammatory and androgenic effect of it, anti-androgen therapy, including birth control pill in limited studies, finasteride, and espirulactone that can be offered particularly in patients that have premenstrual Perfect. And what about the retinoids then? I know we think of HS sometimes its relationship with acne, just like follicular disorders in general. Do you find that they are helpful as adjuncts or can they sometimes be helpful alone? Yeah, this group of therapies are in the guideline is not clear like different guidelines, but at the same time, because we know that they affect on creatinocyte turnover and decreasing follicular 
plugin, then theoretically we expect that retinoids affect on initiation stage of the disease. What is general consensus, um, most of guidelines is about acetretin, that uh, as a second or third line, it has been shown in patients that they fail antibiotics, it is effective to a certain degree. But uh, isotretinoin role is controversial. However, in some guidance has been suggested, particularly because we have limitations with use of acetretin in young females and in patients that have associated acne or more follicular type, it might have some role. Got it. So focusing more on those patients who are both having the HF presentation, but also more follicular, like acne and other follicular disorders. And finally, mm-hmm. moving on to more of the newer, like the biologics and also our older immunosuppressants, when do you reach for these and what guides your choice in picking between them for these patients? Yeah, the use of other immunosuppressives like cyclosporin or methotrexate are very limited, at least in our practice, because the data are very limited on that. But biologics, particularly adalimumab, is the only one that is approved for moderate to severe HS, and it has been shown in large RCT that improved quality of life of this patient. This is something that's widely available because the only approved medication, but at the other anti-TNF, like infliximab, very commonly being used in patients that either not responding to adalimumab or even as a first line, if particularly in patients with higher BMI. Then after anti-TNF, now anti-IL-17, anti-IL-23, and anti-IL-1 biologics are in the line, but none of them are in clinical trial, but none of them have approval yet. Perfect. So usually starting with Primera. And have you been successful in trying to get some of those past infliximab, getting the other medications that we've been lucky to have for psoriasis, using that in these patients? I have yeah. tried, yes. And Dr. Zaid, you Sure. So, yes. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the algorithm like Dr. Alavi described is pretty typical where Adalimumab had large-scale clinical trials. They've got approvals in the U.S. and Canada, and so it's relatively easy to get for most patients with moderate to severe disease at this point. But there are a substantial number that don't improve enough uh, where we have to end up going off-label and using other things. And infliximab is, I think, probably number two, the most commonly used after adalimumab and is very successful for a lot of patients, even if they failed other anti-TNF therapies. Dosing is really important, 10 milligrams per kilogram. Every eight weeks is maintenance is kind of a minimum, and you have to kind of titrate to fit the patient's. And then the other biologics like Anakinra and some of the IL-17s and 23s have very small-scale trials or case series with lower-level evidence to support them. But they can be helpful, I think, in the right context. It depends very much on, again, if a patient has a comorbidity that's covered, you can get it approved in those contexts. There are some programs, like, you know, where if you write appeal letters, sometimes you get it covered through insurance, and there are some particular medications where you can use it off-label through a manufacturer assistance program to provide free drug, even if the insurance does not, uh, sort of denies paying for it. And so there are often ways to get some of those other medications for patients. Probably golimumab, which goes under the trade name Symphony as an IV, is the most common thing I use after infliximab. It's just another TNF inhibitor. And then ixekizumab and secukinumab to some extent have had sort of been hit or miss where some patients do well. And there are clinical trials and, and small case series available for a lot of these IL-17s and 23s and IL-1s right now. And 
I think writing the guidelines four or five years from now, we're going to have a very long list of larger scale clinical trials that have been done because all those things are sort of in either late phase twos or phase threes or some even earlier than that. So it's rapidly changing. And I think there's a lot of promise behind those medicines as long as we get the doses right. And I want to add, Pastor, that uh, what is important is that all of the studies show that before HS, we need higher doses. Then the judgment about the efficacy of biologics is when we try it with the right dose. We, we have to consider that this is HS is very similar to Crohn, to IBD, then we need to go higher dose. And the second thing is if in facility that they have access, one of the things that help us is if we check the therapeutic level of the drug as Dr. Sayed mentioned, many of these patients, either they are primary non-responders or by time they lose the efficacy. This is just based on experience that if we be able to measure the same as gastroenterology and measure the therapeutic drug level, it might guide us that uh, what should be the next step. Right. Either trying to get the dose higher or maybe changing the interval, it sounds like can be helpful for those patients. And then, Dr. Sayed, I know we've seen a lot of surgery with you when I've been with you in clinic. How do you kind of balance deciding when to do surgery for these patients? Or for some patients, do they just choose surgery alone um, with the mercipulization and debriefing process? Or do most of them end up kind of balancing between the two? Yeah, that's, I think, one of the toughest things about HS management is how to, you know, fit medical and surgical management together or when to use them alone sometimes. And so, I mean, surgery is really most important if patients have areas that have tunneling sinus tracts, and if those areas are limited, they need limited surgeries. If they're extensive, they're going to end up probably needing more extensive surgery over time. Now, this all has to do with very much what the patient preferences are, though, because, again, even when you're just choosing medical management alone, some patients really dislike the idea of using antibiotics, and so you avoid it for that reason more so than because you think it's not going to be effective. So, you know, I tend to sort of have a relatively longer discussion with patients at first visits, kind of talking about different potential options, whether it's medical or surgical, and letting them guide me to some extent on the different things they feel comfortable with after I've given them sort of a risk-benefit balance between those different things. If a patient comes in and if they're in their early 20s and they've got active progressive disease, they're getting a lot of new disease all the time. That's where medical management to settle things down and stop progression is really important. Surgery is not going to you know, prevent them from getting new lesions most of the time in the long run. And if you have a patient who's 40, you know, with similar stage disease and they've really got very few in the way of new lesions, mostly just a couple of old recurrent lesions that flare over and over again, that's where targeting those areas with surgery and doing surgery alone might be very reasonable because they really don't see other new things pop up. And you can give them a long-term fix with some focused procedures. But most patients, you know, fall in the middle of that where they've got some new areas popping up that are progressive. They've got some old things that are chronically inflamed. And so you, know, you kind of use medicines first to stabilize things. And that way, when you move on to surgery in those following months, it feels like you're treating the chronic areas only and, and maintaining the rest of things with the medicine. So, you know, and again, some patients hate all medicines and want only surgery and you get stuck in a trap of multiple surgeries over time, but it's, if that's the patient preference, I think you know, we try to follow that as much as possible. But yeah, being able to use both is a huge benefit because either alone mm-hmm. a lot of times just can't do it. Yeah, and it sounds like from your experience, a lot of patients have been really happy with going forward with a surgical intervention as well. So that's wonderful. And then moving forward with a couple of special scenarios and populations, 
First off, dealing with flares. I feel like day to day, this is often what I see coming into my clinic. I know prednisone is always tempting to use to kind of calm down the acute flares. What are some other interventions that you guys will reach for when patients come in with an acute flare in their disease process? I think this is an area that we need to educate our patient and empower them because it's uh, many times the access is difficult for this patient and flare is part of the natural history of this disease. Uh, we use lots of intralesional steroid, about 10 milligrams per milliliter and in intralesional. Also, we use short courses of antibiotics with each flare if patient needed. That's what our strategy or or zero thing uh, if needed. Just to say it, what do you? So yeah, I mean, I think acute flares are one of the most challenging parts of it because when the patients are hurting badly in the moment, they want a quick fix. And most of what we talk about when it comes to medicines we use now, like the biologics or things that are in clinical trials, these are things that are looking at three-month endpoints and not the 30-minute endpoints. And so in those scenarios, you know, if there's a large abscess present, IND is not a fun procedure for the patients to have to go through, but most of them, if they're at a certain point, will be asking for it. And that's a way just to, again, give temporary pain relief. It's not always a long-term fix, but it definitely has a role to play, you know, even though recurrence is a high possibility. And I tend to use a six-millimeter punch tool as opposed to just using an 11-blade, you know, leaving a small opening that drains for a couple of days afterwards. It tends to prevent that recurrence happening over a day or two where it kind of just fills right back up again and, and sort of gets around the need for any kind of wound packing, which is kind of a miserable experience for patients. And so... Just letting that heal by second and 10, I think, is a good way to address a solitary or just one or two abscesses. I definitely use intralesional triamcinolone, like Dr. Lobby said. You know, there was a little bit of evidence available at the time of the guidelines to support it. We had done this randomized controlled trial looking at triamcinolone 40 mg per ml or 10 mg per ml or normal saline a couple years ago. And the results are very confusing because it showed that this triamcinolone groups got better, but the normal saline group also got better to equal extent. And so it may just be that injecting something is helpful. You know, we did 0.1 mLs of either of those concentrations, and maybe it wasn't done enough. So I think we have to figure out what's the sort of right amount or the right technique, or are there right ways to do it and wrong ways to do it? And that's not totally clear because a lot of patients come in asking for it, and it probably is helpful sometimes. But it's, I'm a little confused about what the best way to do that is right now. And I think if we give patients 40 milligrams of Kenalog over the course of injecting it, you know, several different lesions, we're giving them a systemic dose of steroid at that point too, which is going to have a similar effect to prednisone. So it's not clear exactly what's going on in those scenarios. Prednisone, I think, does have a role to play sometimes. You know, if I'm going to be getting, because it works faster than almost anything else, and it works profoundly, so patients really like the response they get, but it has to be a bridge to something else. It is not a long-term solution for these patients that are at such high risk of metabolic syndrome and diabetes already. So two weeks, four weeks as you bridge to whatever long-term therapy they need. It can be very, very useful, and I think benefit can outweigh risk in a lot of scenarios, but it is nice to not overdo it with that when possible. Perfect. And then finally, for patients who are either pregnant or lactating or for younger patients, is there any pearls that you have for kind of what you reach for and if there's any other tips for those special populations? The good news is that now task force and a group are working on a pediatric guideline for HS that help us to respond to this question much better in the future. But what we know now is that in pediatric groups, we have lots of limitations in use of some of the medication that are in the guideline for adults. 
like tetracycline for mm-hmm. children under age nine, and also acetriatine during childbearing age for, for women, not enough for pediatric population. But overall, the rest of treatment based on the cases we decide in pediatric population, most of the treatment, including antibiotics and biologics, are safe to use uh, in limited periods of time for antibiotics. Biologics are approved now for age above uh, 12. Adalimumab is approved and uh, with a different dose based on the weight that can be used. In terms of pregnancy, also we have very limited option to use during pregnancy and unfortunately many of these cases stay the same severity or increase in severity during pregnancy. It has a very unpredictable course, but again, antibiotics and topical agents can be used. And I think things get like, there's probably some controversy and differences in practices around pregnant patients in particular. It is a, not an uncommon problem in HS patients since it's predominantly female and younger patients that pregnancies come up and they need to manage disease through pregnancy happen. So, you know, I think looking at Crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel disease in general, I think it's become much more common practice to treat throughout a pregnancy period. I think that varies where some people will stop it a couple of months ahead of time, where some just avoid it altogether, kind of based on their individual assessment. But I think just like in Crohn's, you know, where if the disease gets out of control and, and you have systemic inflammation that has a negative potential impact on a pregnancy, which has been shown in IBD patients before when there's severe active disease, I think the benefit that you get from controlling disease with a biologic outweighs the potential risk because having an issue where a patient has severe disease flaring around the vaginal area while giving birth and trying to heal from any trauma from that, or if they have issues with inframammary involvement and they can't breastfeed, which is a scenario that happens sometimes, they can't breastfeed the child after it's born because it's just physically too painful, I think controlling disease, there are scenarios where benefit clearly outweighs risk. And so I'm relatively comfortable at this point continuing through a pregnancy if the patient's on board with it. We discuss it some because biologics really haven't been shown to be associated with particular birth defects or really with worse pregnancy outcomes on average for the most part, most of the larger studies that have been done or for sort of negative impact on a child once it's born. You know, there's some level of drug in those infants when they're born, but that hasn't really ever been related to increased risk of infections or things like that. And so I think there are scenarios where it's okay. I don't think it has to be a reflexive thing where you drop the medicine when there's a huge need, but it is a discussion to have with a patient and maybe their OB just to kind of get everybody on the same page and comfortable. And alternatively, we can uh, use a cetralizumab that we know doesn't mm-hmm. uh, pass placenta. Even a study particularly hasn't been done on HS, but if we have a severe case that we want to continue on biologics, that's the alternative option because it's the same mechanism in sanitation. Exactly. This entire conversation has been both personally helpful and wonderful to hear all of your tips on the treatment of HS. Is there anything that you guys would like to emphasize more for our listeners over here? I think what we like, and I leave it to Dr. Sayed also to comment, is that all of these challenges come when we start a treatment late. Uh, earlier that we started treatment and uh, more appropriate treatment, we, the management of disease will be much easier, particularly when we attack the disease from with multiple modality. If we are going to use surgery, medical therapy all together and plan it from the beginning, then it, the management would be much easier. Yeah, and one, I guess, like small comment, you'd asked a bit about your combination of surgery and medicine before and how to use those things together. Mm-hmm. And 
the question all the time comes up of a patient's getting ready to have surgery done, do you have to stop their medical management, things such as their biologics that they're on? And that's an argument I have back and forth sometimes with surgeons and I'm coordinating with other surgeons. My general take is to continue treatment throughout sort of the perioperative period. And there are actually guidelines, I think, within the IBD community now that look at things like when patients need bowel resection for inflammatory bowel disease and that there tend to be no worse outcomes even for large intra-abdominal surgeries like that when patients continue their biologics during that time of surgery compared to those who have stopped them. And so we don't have, you know, similar um, clear data for HS yet, but I think, you know, if that kind of a surgery tends to not be complicated by the use of biologics, there are not issues with wound healing, I think HS is likely to similarly not be very effective. So that kind of helps, I think, in the conversations with surgeons some. And there is some phase four data that ought to be coming out over the next year or two combining adalimumab at the time of surgery and seeing how that impacts things. So hopefully we get more answers there, but my general impression is that continuing medical management, preventing disease flares during that perioperative period, you know, the benefit of that far outweighs the risk of something like a wound infection that is relatively easy to, to treat, even if the, it's just theoretically more likely to happen, which really I think is a rare occurrence in general. Perfect. Yeah, definitely a question I think that has crossed my mind a bunch of times, so I appreciate you bringing that one up. Well, thank you both again for taking the time out of your day to address all these issues with us. I really appreciate it. And on behalf of Biologics and Dermatology, I look forward to having more discussions with you guys on this topic. Thanks again. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Priyanka. Thanks, Asana. Always good to learn from you. Thank you. It was a great opportunity. <laughs> Thanks, Priyanka.